Hi, welcome to Polly Tea, a weekly discussion podcast where we cover uh, different topics that happen during the week from a Canadian student perspective. Uh, I am Ali Lumir Fansa. I use she/her pronouns, and I'm recording on the traditional unceded territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabe Nation. Uh, with me today is Hi, I'm I'm Pramita, and I'll be talking about Trump's refusal to concede today. And my name is Ashwin. Uh... Cool. This week we are covering uh, the United States election, which is obviously a super um, topical topic this week. So, who would like to start? Yeah, so I guess just as like a rundown, because many are many people are aware of what's really going on, but President Donald Trump, despite having lost the election, is currently refusing to concede, claiming that the Democrats and the media are somehow cheating him out of his victory. He so far claimed that a large number of the votes cast in Michigan were cast in the name of dead people, even though there's no evidence to this. Basically, Trump is choosing to end his presidency the way he started, and that is by attacking the truth. Now, not only is the president refusing to concede, I think what's more alarming is the refusal of the administration to do and take the necessary steps in order to move forward with a transition process. For example, Joe Biden has been taking calls from like leaders from Germany, France and Ireland, but none of the calls are being patched through through the U.S. State Department as they typically are because the Trump administration is still refusing to allow the transition process to begin. I'm curious, why do you guys think that Trump's refusal to concede is getting so much backing by the Republican administration? For example, in the case of Mitch McConnell, who's the top Republican leader of the Congress, he's a very institutional person. So I believe that one of the reasons he's defending Trump's actions could be to allow enough leeway for an enraged Trump find his way in this process whilst avoiding antagonizing the 70 million Americans who vote for him. So I'm curious as to what you guys, what's your take on this? So I think, first of all, this whole situation was super inevitable from the start. You have a base of people who just completely deny facts that don't agree with their reality. So obviously, any type of election that isn't in their favor, they're going to not believe in or delegitimize. But when it comes to uh, Republicans in the party backing Trump, I think they've kind of hedged all their bets with Trump winning, like so many moderate Republicans have been ostracized from the party or being kicked out by the Trump supporting members. So I think one reason why they might be so willing to not go with the results of the election is that, you know, what's going to happen if there is a Biden win, right? Trump has made massive changes to the legal system, massive changes to the political system. And I think Republicans uh, who have backed Trump are afraid about where the Trump base is going to be after four years of Biden. And uh, honestly, I am also super curious about where all the Trump supporters are going to go. So I think that might be one reason is that going Trump is for maybe Senate or Republicans who back him a safe bet, which is weird to say about Trump because he seems like the most unsafe person I've ever known. Uh, I don't know. What do you think, Nashwin? Yeah, I think this is quite incredible, uh, to be honest, because you would think that when it comes to this election and and sort of going into the election, even if Trump refused to concede or refused to acknowledge any sort of necessity for a transition, which 
a lot of folks were were predicting and anticipating, you would have expected at least that the way that the U.S. would return to normalcy was through other members of the of the Republican Party uh, in Congress or or otherwise governors and Republicans at the state level. But we're seeing that that's not necessarily the case. There are, I think, five Republican uh, members of Congress. Don't quote me on that. But I believe the, the figure was that there were only five Republican members of Congress that have actually uh, acknowledged uh, Biden's win and are, are sort of pressing for, for Trump to concede. And I think what's more interesting than that is sort of the reason why Republicans are so hesitant to acknowledge that Trump has lost and that Biden has won. And I really think that it speaks to the state of Trumpism and Trump's future and legacy in the party, as well as the base, right? I feel like when Trump came into the Republican fold in 2015, 2016, he was able to gather his base, right? Trump nation. And that serves as an effective base for the Republican Party. And as long as that's an effective base, they will play, the Republican Party will play to that base's needs. And in this case, the Republican base will follow what Trump says. And hence, by extension, the Republican Party sees that it is worthwhile to go ahead and and play these games at sort of the peril of democracy and and it is there's a lot of stuff to say about this it's unprecedented it's it's quite insane i mean if it was any other country we would be using the word coup a lot more than we we usually do and uh, even secretary of state mike pompeo the other day when asked about transitioning or facilitating a transition into the the upcoming biden administration he he deflected and assured that there would be a smooth transition to a second Trump administration, which is, you know, sort of Orwellian stuff that we're seeing and and sort of the erosion of democracy and the rise of some sort of authoritarianism in U.S. politics. Speaking of also like an Orwellian situation, for a group that is so quick to label themselves as, you know, anti-SJW, anti-politically correct, anti-call-up culture, they're, they're really quick to go after people who are recognizing Biden's win. I think Ben Shapiro recently made a comment recognizing the election and it was Liberty Hangout or something. I forget the name, but a, a very like right-wing group called him a liberal for, for supporting the election. Caitlin Bennett, also known as Kent State Gun Girl, you know, just went after a ton of people who are normally Republican and right wing who also recognize Biden's win. And so you have a situation where if you don't acknowledge Trump's win, or if you if you claim that Biden won, and you're a Republican, then you get ostracized from your base as well. So, you know, as you're kind of saying, it's, it's really dangerous for Republicans to support, not even support, but acknowledge Biden's win. Yeah, and I really think uh, there's a lot at stake here, right? And there's, um, you can sort of see two trajectories forming that sort of Trump doesn't concede, but he sort of just quietly moves out of the White House, Biden gets sworn in, and then perhaps there's some sort of restoration of some sense of of normalcy, at least at um, at the level of sort of the the political machinery, or you sort of see. And, you know, I, I feel like this really speaks to the nature of the Republican Party and, and the future of the Republican Party. You know, if when Biden gets sworn in, will the Republican Party choose to continue the way that it is or sort of 
reverse its course and and go back to something that resembles you know a democratic political party because at it, at the current rate right the republican party is sort of transforming into this party that seeks to dominate and to sort of run an authoritarian country and there i mean and there are multiple ways for them to do that it's all about transforming electoral instruments that that the united states has to sort of convert democratic support into something that that favors uh, republican outcomes. I mean, we know that the past something like 7 elections, Democrats have won all of the popular vote except for one election, uh, one presidential election and that was George W. Bush's second term. And so we see with Republican presidents coming in a conversion of democracy uh, such that sort of the minority prevails and and the minority here being support for for Republicans. So really the future of the Republican Party I think is is really the big question mark here and the big story what will happen uh, with the Republican Party do they continue to embrace authoritarian authoritarianism at the risk of weakening the United States because that I I genuinely feel like if we continue at this rate that's that's the future of the United States. The United States as a country, as a nation state will start to erode. Its political institutions will start to erode and it will break down and become a weak state like some of the other states that we see around the world. I mean, just because the United States is a developed nation does not mean that it is immune from that and does not mean that it is immune from being broken up into smaller pieces. Regardless of whether Trump leaves quietly or not, I think it's also pretty evident that he is doing everything in his power to cement his agenda either way. And I think that's evident as just the events in the past week where the White House fired top officials of the Pentagon and, you know, replaced them with loyalists. Again, most Republicans are just going along with this. One which made a lot of noise was the firing of the Defense Secretary Mark Esper, and he left as he disagreed with the president on a number of issues, one of them including the use of active military forces to quell the street protest during Black Lives Matter, the Black Lives Matter movement. Again, so far, all of Trump's moves seem to be an effort to shape the government to his liking, regardless of whether he's a part of it or not. So I think it'll be quite interesting and terrifying at the same time to see what other damage he's going to cause between now and January 20th as he's going on this little tantrum. I guess very quickly, I just wanted to ask you guys, what what do you think is going to happen? Will Trump eventually concede? Do you think Biden will get sworn in regardless of whether Trump concedes or not? Do you think, you know, Farmida, you were, you were mentioning sort of the changes to the Pentagon that, that Trump is making, do you think there are developments to be seen on that front with regard to preserving the Trump administration into a second term? What do we think? Honestly, I have absolutely no idea because my initial thought was, well, there's only so far they can go, but I've also been saying that every day for the past four years. So I'm not, I'm not sure. Because, you know, I think... I have made the error of underestimating Trump, Trump's base, Trump supporters, and how willing they are to act out. So, I mean, listen, we're in a global pandemic and they're going out in massive rallies to support Donald Trump. Like if they're if they're willing to put their lives and their families' lives on the line like that just to go to some rally, even if they don't believe in it. 
Um, I don't know. I don't know what they're willing to do. And I I also don't want to make a dramatic statement and say, oh, they're going to start a second civil war and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, there is a lot of anger rising from the Trump base that's been simmering for a long time. There's a lot of white anger and white racism that's been simmering for not white racism, racism, period. Um, That's been kind of simmering for a long time that is likely going to escape very soon. And, you know, America's not getting whiter. Let's be real here. They, for me, I think that's an amazing thing. But the era of having these old white men rule over a nation that, a nation that's built off of white supremacy, I think that's over. You know, Biden is hopefully going to be the last one, in my opinion. But you know, if 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 older white people aren't willing to accept that, then I think we're going to see some violent outcomes. In my opinion, it's more of just kind of Trump has to concede. Like, I don't see a scenario where he can simply just go on without doing so. Like, I mean, but then again, so much has happened in the past four years that it's like, oh, that would never happen. But no, there again, wrong, wrong I was. But I believe that, yes, Trump will eventually concede. But I'm not sure how much of a difference that will make just even as I mentioned what's happening with the Pentagon if, you know, the national security infrastructure is going to consist of Trump loyalists, then what kind of barriers is that going to present to the Biden administration down the road? And so how much leeway will I have to enact certain changes or reverse things that Trump has done in the last four years? So I do think that he will concede, but okay, yes, Trump leaves, but how much power will he still hold? That is the question. You know, Ali, you mentioned, uh, and I guess this is sort of a tangent here, but Ali, you mentioned uh, the fact that America is not getting whiter and sort of the the proportion of white people in the United States, as well as here in Canada, is diminishing. Um, I feel like uh, contrary, so, so uh, you expressed optimism around that, but I also feel like uh, there is... Uh, that is actually very closely linked to the rise of Donald Trump and sort of how the Republican Party has taken on white grievance as their major. And I mentioned this like the last time we recorded as well, the Republican Party does not have a platform. It it doesn't stand for anything uh, but white grievance. Um, And the fact that America is going to hell and, uh, you know, sort of a, a yearning for the good old days. Um, and and they, they functionally act as opposition to everything. They, they're not constructive as a party. They're dis- destructive. Um, and, and that destructive nature is fueled primarily by white grievance. Uh, and so a diminishing white population, uh, actually, in my opinion, uh, is in some ways more conducive to that. And, um, uh, you know, there's a lot of talk around future Donald Trump's, um, which I think is, I mean, you know, even if we get rid of him this time, um, which I think we will, uh, who's stopping another uh, Trump-like figure? I mean, it could even be his children. or, or others, but that is more competent, right? And this is what a lot of folks are saying. Donald Trump 
is sort of an authoritarian wannabe, but he's not smart. He's not intelligent. He doesn't, he's not tactful and he's not very capable, but who's stopping someone else that is all of those things. And also a wannabe dictator from, from, you know, effectively winning votes from the same base, right? Someone who is of a similar flavor, but smarter and more effective. And, and, you know, that, that is very closely tied to white grievance and, and the state of white people in the United States. Uh, let's remind ourselves that South Africa functioned, I mean, even though South Africa had a minority white population, they were able to successfully terrorize the rest of of the population throughout the apartheid uh, apartheid regime regime and sort of changing demographics. I feel in some ways is is more dangerous. Sort of speaking about the Republican Party, I want to twist the lens over to the Democrats because, as is well known, the Democrats held on to their majority in the Congress, in the House of Representatives, but they did lose around 10 to 15 seats, which has been a major cause for concern for the older party leaders. They recently held an e-conference discussing the reason why those seats were lost. And then there were several moderate members that called out progressive policies as being the cause of losing so many seats, citing Black Lives Matter, Medicare for All. They also called out some party members for refusing to refute socialism or deny a socialist position. And I, I personally speaking, I have a lot of issues about this, but you know, though a lot of those issues have already been voiced, which is that the Democratic Party is not getting older. And a lot of the people who supported the Democrats this election were younger people, were people of color, especially black women who came in and supported the administration. And I think Representative Pramila J. Paul put it really well when she said, you know, and I quote, we didn't get the reputation of Trump we wanted, but we turned out huge members of young people, brown and black people. Don't be so quick to blame the members who have been responsible for energizing the groups who will ultimately save the day in the race for the White House. And then Representative Rashida Tiab said, to be real, it sounds like you're saying stop pushing for what Black folks want. She said hours into the call, I feel like I'm being asked to be quiet. My constituents didn't elect me to be quiet. And I think there is a lot of issues that I don't have the time to delve into about white moderates going after people of color, especially women of color in their party about quieting their dissent and their silence. I think that's a huge, that's a very racist and violent thing for them to engage in. But just to go on the claims that progressive policies lost seats in swing states, AOC made a really uh, important comment when she stated that we learned that progressive policies do not hurt candidates. Every single candidate that co-sponsored Medicare for all in a swing state kept their seat. We also know that co-sponsoring the New Deal was not a sinker. Mike Levin was an original co-sponsor of the legislation and he kept his seat. So what she's saying here is essentially throwing out the claim that, or just completely trashing the claim that progressive policies are, are the cause for losing seats in swing states. I want to get your guys' opinion on this. Do you think that it's a smart move for moderate Democrats to ask for a united party and to go after progressives in the party for their differing opinions? And why do you think there seems to be a loss of seats if if that's true? So I have a lot of thoughts on this. I think, you know, that there's sort of, I guess, this old guard sort of notion around how to gain votes among Democratic, well, well, in the Democratic Party. And that's sort of thinking about it in terms of the, the left and right. And America tends to lean to the right. And there's, I guess, this traditional thinking that, you know, if we sort of coalesce around the center, 
we we sort of appeal to a larger swath of society you know both from the the center right and center left and right smack in the center and then that's that's the coalition that we need to to govern effectively and to elect a president and to you know to to turn out favorable outcomes in um, in the, in the senate and and the house but the reality is right average voters are not thinking in terms of this academic theoretical left right scale a lot of folks don't even know what that is you know they have no reason to so really what i think the democratic party is sort of um, missing here is is the fact that folks turn out when there is a constructive project that that you know they see that their society can build right and uh, the sort of the, the moderate slow and steady approach is not energizing it's not optimistic it's not constructive it's uh, hey let's let's play it safe let's see how it goes and i don't see how that approach excites people right i mean <laughs> it's sort of like the democratic party says hey slow and steady you know a little bit here and there we should be good now that should be exciting for everyone and people should vote for us i mean it's it's so antithetical to each other and so so that's where we see you know progressives being shut down oh you know defund the police was was detrimental to to the democratic party's fortunes in this election no it wasn't it it it's a constructive project right reallocating funds from police that that are known to harass and terrorize people away from them and into social services that actually help people that is a constructive project the green new deal is a constructive project especially in light of covid right where we're saying we we've been through one crisis but hey slow and steady for the other for the next one you know the green new deal is is something that's exciting it's a way that you know the united states will be able to transform its economy and its uh, social structures in order to better adapt itself to the climate crisis which is which is here but whose worst effects are are yet to be felt those are constructive things medicare for all those are constructive things to orient your party around so that people get energized and excited so that people feel like they're voting for something not against not simply against something and so those so those are my thoughts and if i can mention one more thing we see that uh, and in some ways uh, we can we can see that the american left is much more salient among voters at large than the canadian left we can see that there were a lot of progressive outcomes from this election regardless of whether uh, regardless of how the democrats did right ali you mentioned that all the co-sponsors of the medicare for all bill were reelected and we also saw that a number of states new jersey arizona montana south dakota they all legalized recreational cannabis uh, use that is something the democratic party has stood against but that is a constructive project right especially in a country that has you know the history around the war on drugs it's it's very well known it's it's a destructive effects on black folks and other people of color uh, in the united states and so the legalization of marijuana was a constructive project uh, around which voters could coalesce and and you know they made their voice heard i think there are lessons here that the old guard of the of the democratic party could learn uh, and and could sort of shift away from traditional notions of of electoral success
I think what we tend to forget and it was very evident with this election is how much of the the U.S. population still remains extremely conservative. And so when you have individuals such as AOC very openly and publicly proposing these policies that the moderates and a lot of conservatives will initially deem as too extreme, such as even defunding the police, as was mentioned, when I feel like a large portion of people, maybe when they initially hear that statement, oh, defund the police entirely they're like whoa that's extreme and maybe won't necessarily take the time to actually examine okay what are the strategies what are the policies how are we going to approach this and so we'll immediately move away from it and another thing is like change has always been scary right change is always scary whether in in someone's individual life or as a nation so when you have these well at least for moderates radical policies being proposed, the tendency to have a strong backing, at least at the start, is going to be very low. So I think right now was with this election, it was too soon to see progressives have the the support that they were looking for. But maybe by the next election, again, when also we have a larger population of young voters, then we can expect better outcomes. I think um, speaking of young voters, that's an interesting situation because young there were a lot of young voters this election. And obviously, young voters have never been the pillar on which to build your campaign. There tends to be a lot of, you know, young voters aren't super reliable as a base, but it seems as though in the US, maybe it's something about the past four years, but there were a lot of young voters that came out. And just since we're talking a bit about the Democratic Party and the future of the Democratic Party, do you think that if Trump does concede the election and we have four years of a Biden presidency, do you think there'll be more complacency do you think people will grow, become more complacent as they were before Trump was elected? Or do you think that young people will still continue to be as active in politics as they are now? I feel like young folks who are actively involved in movements and in organizing are going to continue that way. I feel like there is sort of the risk of complacency after Trump gets defeated amongst some But I think the motivating factor for young folks is that they don't see their political interests embodied in the Republican Party, nor in the current Democratic Party. And I think that is cause for them to keep to keep fighting. And and this is, I feel like for most young folks, uh, you know, the Democratic Party isn't strong enough on climate change, it isn't strong enough on equity issues and uh, economic disparity. And so I think I think young folks will keep the momentum with the risk of some growing more complacent. And, and just to sort of go on a little bit further about the Democratic Party itself, I think the Democratic Party, their ine- inevitable future is progressivism. Seeing how, I mean, you know, Pramita was saying that it might take a while. And I see that, you know, AOC got elected in 2018, which was just two years ago. And then you see the rise of the squad and, and and you have more progressive representatives this time around. I feel like you could give it four to five to eight years and, and you will see some sort of uh, transformation within the Democratic Party because there will be turnover. People will get voted out. Other more progressive folks will get voted in like we saw this election. And in that way, I think there is there is a very strong and salient future for the American left, unlike the Canadian left, actually, I think the Canadian left is a little stifled at the moment and will not progress as as, as fast as, as the American left will. 
think another thing is Trump's reign within the last four years kind of installed this terror that if anything will motivate young activists, in my opinion, to remain active in order to avoid another individual similar to Trump regaining a position of power. Although I do believe it also largely depends on the approach of Biden's administration to the current demands of the Democratic Party progressives. Also, just because what a large role they had in getting Biden elected in the first place. Although I think it's going to be very difficult for the administration to respond to these demands whilst, you know, avoiding antagonizing, again, the 70 million people who had who had voted for Trump and you know, don't necessarily want um, Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders in a position in Congress, right? So um, I think it's just depending within the next four years, how much progress they see will will either further motivate them or or not. That's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. This is an MIR podcast. Please go like us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and follow us on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts to get the latest MIR podcasts. Have a great week.